good evening and welcome to Steadfast. I'm so glad to be here with you tonight. It's been a hot summer day. We're in the midst of a heat spell and it probably has you thinking like I'm thinking, how can we cool off? You walk outside and it just feels oppressive. So maybe you jump in a pool. I love being in the pool, cooling off, enjoying the refreshing water during the middle of summer. Maybe you'd like to go to the lake and hop on a boat and then jump in the lake somewhere and cool off. Now, not every boat is meant to be just a pleasure boat to go and find a place to enjoy cool water and refreshment, though. Sometimes they're carrying cargo. A lot of times they're carrying cargo. And I read it over the weekend, the story of a sinking sheep ship, a, a ship that was intended to haul sheep from one Arabian country to another, but it didn't make it. It was supposed to carry about 9,000 sheep from country to country. It was headed to Saudi Arabia. But they decided to put extra sheep on, and they put 15,000 sheep on this ship instead of the 9,000 it was supposed to hold. It ended up sinking. Now, they were able to rescue a few hundred of those sheep, although they're not even sure those sheep will survive, because unlike us jumping in the water intentionally, those sheep weren't trying to go into the ocean to cool off, and so this sinking sheep ship did not accomplish its goal. It sunk instead. And and so what seemed like an attempt to grasp at greater success by having more sheep on the ship ended up being something that was just a waste instead. Sheesh. So often we do the same thing. We, 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 we see an opportunity for success and or what we think is success. And so we start piling onto the ship of life, all these sheep, and it ends up sinking. And then we look at it and we think, well, why did I do that? Because now I don't have my ship and I don't have my sheep. And yet we do it again and again and again. And Satan loves to pull the wool over our eyes and cause us to do it again. And one of the ways he loves to do that is to make us think that being self-interested, loading up our ship with the sheep of self-interest, of pride, of importance of self and opposition to others will somehow offer success. It ultimately leads to us sinking. And as we continue our series tonight, Agur is going to cause us to have to wrestle with that. He's going to present some pictures of the sorts of ways that our hearts play into our self-interest that end up sinking our ship. So let's come before our God and ask that he would help us to see that so that we don't keep doing it. Would you join me in prayer? Father, so often it, it seems like we're loading up our ships of life with things that are going to lead to success. And yet, in fact, what we're doing is we're loading up with things that will sink us. Would you help us to see the things that are displeasing to you and against the purposes that you have for us in life? And instead, only seek to haul the cargo you intend. Would you help us to, to trust in you and trust in your grace enough that we don't feel like we somehow have to, to watch out for ourselves and, and somehow overload the cargo with things that we think will somehow fix life instead that we see that you have it under control we pray in jesus name amen so that story in a way is sort of funny it's also sort of tragic because a lot of sheep died in it but it's still kind of far afield from what we're normally doing we're not normally working with sheep but we are dealing with ways that we too fall into the trap that those loading up that ship did and it really does lead to destruction. Sometimes it's just temporary destruction. Sometimes it's just chaos in our lives. But sometimes it's leading us far, far away from God and, and into the worst sorts of destruction. And, and so we're going to turn tonight, starting in verse 10 of Proverbs 30. If you have your Bible, please turn there. 
And we're going to see some different pictures that are meant to help jolt us into seeing this. Now, last week we began this series and we looked at the first six verses. We are skipping verses 7 to 10, or excuse me, 7 to 9, not because those verses aren't wonderful, but we actually looked at those the second week of our other series on Sunday nights, Blessed, and they really transition into where we're going tonight. Those verses talk about Agur's prayer that he would neither be too rich so that he thinks he can depend on himself or too poor that he might end up resorting to, again, depending on himself by stealing or what have you, to somehow survive. He prays instead that the Lord would provide him with just enough. Now we see people who aren't willing to ever see enough. And and I say people that aren't. What I really should say is all of us who aren't, because in some part or parts of our life, we probably aren't willing to say, I have enough. I And it may be actual financial uh, security. It may be possessions. It may be success. It may be people's appreciation. It may be all kinds of different things, but there's usually something where we say it's not enough. Let's take a look at these verses and see what Agar has to show us. He says in verse 10, Do not slander a servant to his master, lest he curse you, and you be held guilty. There are those who curse their fathers and do not bless their mothers. There are those who are clean in their own eyes, but are not washed of their filth. There are those who, how lofty are their eyes, how high their eyelids lift. There are those whose teeth are swords and whose fangs are knives to devour the poor from off the earth, the needy from among mankind. The leech has two daughters, give and give. These three things are never satisfied, four never say enough. Sheol, the barren womb, the land never satisfied with water, and the fire that says enough. The eye that mocks a father and scorns to obey a mother will be picked out by the ravens of the valley and eaten by the vultures. Now, that sounds like a lot of different things going on, doesn't it? And it's easy to read Agur's words like we do a lot of the rest of Proverbs, where the individual Proverbs aren't really meant to be held together. But but this section of Proverbs really is more of a single unit, and, and we're intended to see these things together. Agur is giving us different pictures, but they're building a case. And what we see here is really boiled down to, in verses 12 and 13, where he talks about the people who think they are great and think other people aren't. We look back at verse 13 again. It says, there are those, how lofty are their eyes, how high their eyelids lift. So they're looking up at themselves. They're thinking about how great they are. While on the other hand, they don't realize what's wrong with themselves. Those lofty eyelids lifted up, they can snub other people. But they need to be looking at themselves. Verse 12, there are those who are clean in their own eyes but are not washed of their filth. And this is the core problem here. And everything being described, we're dealing with people who think that they are great, that they have it together. And if we look in our own hearts, that's what we want to think of ourselves. Even if we say, well, I don't have anything together. My life's a mess. Oftentimes we want to pat ourselves on the back for recognizing that I don't have anything together and my life's a mess. And so it's sort of funny, even in that, we find ways to affirm ourselves. I get it. These other people don't. That's a constant human temptation. And he gives us some different ways this plays out. For example, verse 10 is someone who sees a servant, could be slave, 
someone who, in, in other words, is in a, a lowlier state in society, and he goes and slanders that person to that servant's master in order to just cause harm to someone who isn't seen as worthy. But Agar cautions in verse 10, lest he curse you and you be held guilty. The person thinks he can get away with it. Well, I'm just slandering a servant. That servant's not going to do anything to me because I'm high and lifted up. I'm important. And yet this is going to ultimately bring that person destruction. We see throughout scripture the dangers of, of speaking falsely of someone and the implications of a curse. And we don't often think about those today, but it's certainly meant to cause us hesitation. It matters even when speaking of the people who are least seemingly capable of defending themselves in society, that we can't just get away with stuff with them. And we see that again, for example, in verse 14, where he talks about those who devour the poor and the needy. Especially in a society like this, there's no welfare net, there's, there, there's no giant societal organizations or, or governmental programs trying to, to help people. There is simply what God calls his people to do, and there's a lot of that, and we'll get more into that in a moment. But certainly the temptation could be to think, well, if you're in a very bad spot financially, I can take advantage of you because what in the world are you going to ever be able to do to me? And there's nothing you have to offer me, so why don't I just take advantage of you? And in that, we start to get this picture of, of a heart, and even if we don't live these exact scenarios, but a heart that's really evaluating other people in the sense of, what do you have for me? What's in it for me if I interact with you? And if there's nothing, then I can look down on you. And, and we see that as well in verse 11, those who curse their fathers and do not bless their mothers. Someone who, who looks at their parents and says, they're, they're of no use to me at this point. They're no advantage to me. Uh, so in different ways, we're seeing reminders, uh, reminders of those who are uh, who aren't well off in society, those who simply maybe we feel like can't contribute for whatever reason into our lives in this moment. The, the challenge being we're evaluating people for what they can do for us and then casting them off because we view ourselves as important enough. We don't need to worry about them. But maybe we look in some sense clean. We, we look at ourselves as he says in verse 12, and, and see cleanliness. And, and that's often because we do certain outer rituals or, or practices that, that seem to testify to us of what it would look like to be clean, to be faithful, to be righteous, to be pious. What we're not doing is examining our motives. Maybe it's showing up at church and doing all the right things there, but then taking advantage of someone in the office on the next day. Maybe it's how we treat the person that we are served by as we go out to eat after church. Maybe it's how we treat our families. We, we get all the stuff right that, that seemingly makes us look like a, a faithful Christian, except that we treat our families like dirt. Or our neighbors. Or the person we don't know. Because the Bible doesn't say that only people that are close to us or only people that we know matter. It says that every person that God has made matters. And and so by using these different examples, Agar wants us to be thinking both with those close, like our parents, and those who, who may be very far away from us, like somebody else's servant. We don't have servants in our, our culture per se, but think about people that help you in some way, whether it's the mechanic or, or the grocery store clerk or, or the waiter at the restaurant, whatever it might be, someone who we tend to view purely in the sense 
of what they're doing for us. And they just rub us the wrong way and, and we go and complain about them to their manager or whatever. And we don't, we're not actually caring about the truth. Or we're just rude to them because we think, well, I'm never going to see this person again. We're challenged in all these things to instead see the heart that God has for each person. And and so the problem is we, we, we're focused on our own hearts and our own happiness and, and our own benefit and we forget everybody else or some of everybody else. Very few of us perhaps forget constantly everybody else. We don't properly value the people that God brings into our life, whether for a moment or for a very long time. And so we're called to understand God's care. And these examples that Agar picks out are, are prime examples throughout Scripture that cover a broad swath of the people that, that we will interact with. And take a look at these, these laws that we find in the Torah and the first five books of the Bible that speak to this. For example, he uses the, the example of, of, of one's parents. And, of course, this is a very familiar verse. It's one of the Ten Commandments. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God has given you. And yet we know that people were constantly ignoring that command in Scripture and do still today. Or take a look at this, Leviticus 19.34. You shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you, and you shall love him as yourself, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Or again, Leviticus 23.22. And when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to the its edge, nor shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. Each of these is an example that applies to a different part of life. The one's really easy for us to connect with, even if it's hard to do. And, and so he, he's talking about mothers and fathers. We, we get that, right? We understand the idea of honoring parents, and we might struggle with it. We might not do it well, but we we at least understand that one. The other two, though, can be harder for us to connect with. What does it mean to treat a sojourner? Or what does it mean for us to treat the poor by not reaping our field all the way? These are very much more alien concepts. And so let's think about those for a moment. The first one, there would be people, and we have this today, of course, but even more so at the time that would be traveling. There were many people in the area that were nomadic, and someone might wander through the land of Israel who wasn't an Israelite. And in that, they would be called to follow the laws of Israel. But when you were nomadic and you were traveling into a different land, it wasn't just that you were expected to follow the ways of that land. You were often viewed in such a way that even if you did, you were still lesser. And the temptation would be, to, to view the person that comes in as somehow not worthy of the same treatment and the same protections that, that you would give to someone who's one of your fellow compatriots, someone who's a fellow citizen. And scripture challenges us when someone comes who, who isn't part of our group, and whether that's just our little societal group, our, our little social clique, our, our, our church group, our work group, whatever it might be, or on a larger level, someone who we encounter who, for example, if you're listening here from the United States, someone who isn't an American that comes through, to, to genuinely think about that person and to treat them as you would like to be treated yourself, apply the golden rule, even though they are not like you in some way or another, not like me in some way or another. And, and we frequently struggle with that. When someone's different, we struggle to treat them with the same kind of treatment that we would like. But scripture is 
explicit on this. We're called to do it. We're called to see that value and, and, and not to devour them like the underprivileged that Eger is talking about. Likewise, the poor, and and, and again, this is a, is a concept that's a little hard for us to understand if we're not farmers today, but in a society that didn't have any kind of social safety net for people, if they couldn't afford food or if they had a field and it was destroyed or whatever might happen, they were going to starve. There, there wasn't a, a food pantry. There wasn't a welfare check. There was nothing. If you didn't have food, you just died. And so what does God do with his people? He says to his people, when you're harvesting your field, so you, clearly there's a harvest for you. Clearly you're enjoying some of God's provision in that way. Don't hog it. Leave some of it. Leave, leave the edges. Don't be perfectly clean in the way you harvest your field. And then the law said that the poor could come and they were within their rights to come and and reap what was left. They could take some of the grain or, or whatever was there and enjoy it. And that way there was a provision for those who needed food. Now, unless you have a farm field, you can't even begin to do this. And and today we don't have poor going down to the farmland and, and generally speaking, as far as I know, at least, and, and looking for some grain that hasn't been harvested, but we can apply the same principle. And, and we can do that by, for example, however we receive our income, if it's not through growing crops, if it's through money, thinking about that money and thinking about that harvest and thinking about how can I use some of that to help those in need. Certainly, as we serve together and we give together as, as a body and we give to the church, the church has a calling to do that. We should be helping those in need. And likewise, we're called to do that as individuals. And, and so we can start to see that even though it feels a little bit alien in the particular presentation. We're called to care for others. And that, that's the big point that Eger wants us to see. And, and yet we say, but who's going to look out for me? Is anyone going to care for me the way that I'm supposedly supposed to care for others? And we think, well, if I want to enjoy success, it's not going to work that way. The ones who devour the poor, the ones who just cast off their parents, the ones who, who look down on other people often get ahead. And we say they seem to be really, really successful. But are we measuring it properly? Let's think about hamburgers for a moment. Uh, here's a delicious cheeseburger I took a few years ago at a restaurant that's unfortunately no longer open. But but I think most of us appreciate a really fine cheeseburger. And oftentimes we want to know, well, how much does it weigh? Is it a, a good size burger? Is it going to fill me up? Do I need to order a double burger because the patties are so thin? Or is it a really thick burger, etc.? And certainly fast food restaurants vie for attention by advertising how big their burger is. And for example, we... We know about the Big Mac and the Quarter Pounder with cheese and McDonald's and how much they weigh. And there's a story that's gone around, and I looked up, it's actually sadly true, about a number of decades ago when A&W decided to try to get the upper hand on McDonald's. They released a third of a pound burger to compete with McDonald's Quarter Pound Burger because they thought if they offered a bigger burger, people would gravitate towards that and they could win a burger war with McDonald's. However, it failed miserably. And so the, the executives started doing research into why it was failing miserably. And it came down to, at least in a large part, to a really sad fact, which is that people don't understand fractions. They looked at a third and they saw the three and they saw the four and quarter pounder and they thought, well, four is bigger than three. And if you remember fractions from school, that's actually not true. It's the opposite. The quarter pound burger is smaller than the third of a pound burger. 
And yet a very significant portion of those who heard the ads for this bigger burger actually thought it was smaller. So they didn't seize upon the bigger burger that was a better value. The problem is, even if we understand fractions, we often don't understand success. And we look at this momentary success of looking out for ourselves and it looks like a bigger burger. But in fact, we're, we're getting the fractions wrong and we're seizing onto something that's actually smaller and, and more limited. And ultimately is going to be passing and, and it's going to fail right before our eyes. But we think we're getting something better. We think that those other people that are seizing onto that quarter pounder are coming out better than those of us that are munching along on God's third of a pounder. But in fact, with God, it's much, much bigger than that because we get eternal blessing. We get the love of God. We get fellowship with God and we get it forever. So what we need to see and what Agar is calling us to see is that our pursuits for more, our pursuits for our own success are ultimately going to come up empty. And that's what those pictures at the end of this passage are addressing. Take a look at verse 15. The leech has two daughters, give and give. Three things are never satisfied, four never say enough. Sheol, the barren womb, the land never satisfied with water, and the fire that never says enough. The eye that mocks a father and, and scorns to obey a mother will be picked out by the ravens of the valley and eaten by the vultures. So let's start at the top of this. There's a lot of pictures here. But we start out with this picture of of a leech, and that leech is two daughters, give and give. And, and that's meant to maybe make us chuckle a little before the images get a little more intense. The, the word there is exactly the same on both daughters. They're twin daughters, give and give. So this leech, which is constantly leeching away, then has two daughters who are also just constantly leeching and leeching and leeching. And, and isn't that what we do? Isn't that what we do when we think, I need a little more success, I need to look out for number one a little bit more, I need to make sure that I'm okay a little bit more, and the question is, when do I have enough and I can start worrying about other people? And it's really often challenging to reach that, at least in certain areas. Some areas we may see that very clearly in our life, but Scripture challenges us to really examine our hearts and ask where instead we're saying, give, give. Because as we start to try to build up our own success and we think, well, I need to look out for myself in this area, what we're supposed to see is all those other pictures and how they're insatiable. They're, they, they will never be satisfied. A common biblical form is to say there are three of, of something and then say there's four. And that's basically a shorthand way of saying this is a list of examples. It's not everything that's like this. In fact, we should imagine quite a few more things like this, but these things are like this. And that's what Agar says with these pictures he gives. And each one is desolate in a different way. When we look at verse 16, we have Sheol. In other words, the place just vaguely is not is clearly defined in parts of the Old Testament, but the place that people go when they die. In fact, in other words, death never says, well, I've had enough people die. Death just keeps devouring people. It's the beautiful picture of the New Testament that death gets defeated by Jesus. But we know as we experience death around us, as we see loved ones, friends, and family dying, as we go through a global pandemic for the last few years, or we look at a war going over in Europe that just seems to be taking lives, or, or just normal everyday life, we, we see death and its inability to ever be quenched. And he goes on, the barren wombs, those who, who would like to have children who can't, they're not going to be satisfied 
without or the land without water we're in a parched part of the world you can dump a bunch of water on it it's still going to be dry with a fire that never says enough maybe that gets most of the heart of things because we think about a fire and we never look at our say our house and say you know i'm gonna light a fire on one side of it because i know that fire is just gonna burn maybe a wall or two that kind of i'm not crazy about and then just stop we wouldn't do that because we know if the fire gets started and it, and there's a bunch of fuel, it's just going to keep going. It's going to be really, really hard to stop. And it's going to cause massive damage. And what Eger is saying is these ways that we seek to, to build ourselves up by taking advantage of other people, they also won't be satisfied. The more that we try to quench our own desire for self-advantage, the more that we're going to need it. We're going to keep demanding more and more and more. And it doesn't result in our elevation, ultimately. It might in the moment, but just like that burger that was a quarter pound was smaller than the third pound burger, so too, while we feel like we're actually moving up in the grand scheme of history, in the eternity that God talks about, we're actually sinking deeper and deeper into death. And that's what we see in that really, really desolate picture at the end, when he talks about the eye that mocks a father and scorns to obey a mother will be picked out by the ravens of the valley and eaten by the vultures. We go right back to that picture of parents that we had earlier. It helps to signify all of this is meant to be taken as a block together. It's, it's a set of pictures building a particular case. And in that, in other words, those that do the things that are listed out there are headed not to success, but to death. He challenges us, is that what we really want? Now, in the time of the Proverbs, we could say, well, no, I want to follow the Lord. But as God reveals more of himself, and we see in the New Testament an even clearer picture of what he wants, we see very directly what he's calling us to do in response to this. When we say, no, this is not what I want. This, these pictures are meant to horrify us. It's meant to be like Ebenezer Scrooge's experience as he's having those encounters with the ghosts and he says, no, I don't want this. I'm going to be different. And he wakes up on Christmas morning and, and, and wants to actually live a very different life. We're meant to see these things and be horrified and then do something different. Luke chapter 9. This is what Jesus says. It says, and he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? Jesus brings the question right to its head. He says there are two choices. We can seek to, to do what we want and what provides us with our success in our minds in, in this moment. And we can lose our lives. Or we can follow him, and that's not going to necessarily lead immediately to worldly success. We talked about that in the message last night about persecution, and this is a prime example of that. It, it can often feel like it's the opposite of what we want when we follow Jesus in the moment. But what does he say? Those who follow him gain life. We gain eternal life. We follow the one who has defeated death so that we too can say, Oh, death, where is your sting? We need to ask, what is success? It's always important to to ask that question, to ask the question about something that we're pursuing, have we actually reached it? What does it look like? And oftentimes I don't think we really think about that in, in the case of our own attempts to advance ourselves. 
was reading headlines over the last few days about an engineer from Google who has now been fired for sounding what he feels is an alarm bell that he believes that Google's attempts to create artificial intelligence have reached the point where some of the artificial intelligence is sentient. That is, it has its own thoughts and feelings. And, and he released transcripts of talking to this chatbot that Google has created in which he talks to that chatbot about law and religion and various other things. And some of it's kind of eerie. It, it's, there are questions of what we're doing with AI. Of course, science fiction loves to play with that. And, and some of us think, well, how close are we to Skynet or something like that that's going to to seek to destroy us because it takes over and it has its own mind. And so I guess for decades now, we've kind of feared it and we've also sort of poo-pooed it. You know, okay, that's something grand for science fiction, but will it happen? But here this engineer actually believes it has. And there's a lot of debate on whether it has and how you would ever determine if it has. Because if you create really good artificial intelligence, if you think about something like, say, Siri or, or one of those other virtual assistants that we now depend on, Google Home, that sort of thing. When we call out to them, they sort of seem to interact with us, and yet we also know that they're pre-programmed responses. And now we've gotten a little further, and, and for example, I use video editing software that can add in details that were missing in video and make it look better. And it wasn't there. It figures it out. And so we're making all this progress, but it's still based on things that are being programmed in. If, in fact, this Google artificial intelligence is sentient, it's thinking on its own, that's a whole new thing. And it brings up all kinds of ethical issues and how it's used and, and whether it should even be created and so on. But the key thing that needs to be defined is, is it or not? What does that mean? And this is a, a whole new area. We don't even know how to define it. And if you follow the science fiction, you might say we won't know soon enough. But the question is, what is it? Same thing's true as we define success in our lives. And oftentimes we kind of let it out there vague and, and, and we don't know until it's too late because we've based our life on something that's ultimately not genuine success. But Eger here calls us to recognize what success really is, to recognize that God's success is different than worldly success. But it's not just different, it's better. It's lasting. And that's what God intends for us to experience. That's my prayer for you and for me that we would experience that. And so... Now would you join me in prayer as we come before the God who gives the only genuine and lasting success. Let's pray. Father, so often we, we come up with these sort of vague senses of what will be success for us, or maybe even very specific ones, but we, we don't really ask the question, well, then what? What happens in 10 years or 20 years? What happens when we die? But you call us to look at eternity with you to look at your heart and to see that success in this moment, even when it doesn't feel necessarily like success in our own minds, is success because it's advancing your kingdom and drawing us closer to you and allowing us to experience more fellowship with you. And in that, it genuinely is success. Lord, would you give us your heart by the power of your spirit? Would you direct our hearts to love the things that you love and to count success what you count it? Would you let us rest in your grace as we do that? We can't do it on our own, Father, but we pray that you would empower us to. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I hope this message was an encouragement to you. And if you would, would you help me out in letting more people know about God's kingdom and its success? You can do that by, by sharing this video on your social media account, liking it so that 
the various AI that's out there can know that people appreciate it. And maybe subscribing to our Facebook page, our YouTube channel, following us on Twitter, doing those sorts of things so that you can help get the word out. Together, we can speak about God's success and help a world that's trying to figure out what in the world matters understand what really does. Well, this was a heavy week, but next week we are going to shift gears a little as Agar goes on and look at things that are wonderful. And it's going to be, I think, a really encouraging time just reflecting on what God has made and how wonderful it is. I hope you'll join me at 7 p.m. next Monday night for that. In the meantime, I'd encourage you to come on Sunday night and join us for in-person worship at Little Hills. If you can come in person, it would be great to see you there. And of course, we're always delighted to have our online community joining us from around the world on Sunday nights as well. We're all together, whether we're in person or online, celebrating our good and faithful God. We did have a few problems this week if you were tuning in online, and we will be posting a full copy of that service later this week. So if you missed it, you can take part. But hopefully that'll be fixed for next week. And of course, however, whatever technological issues come into play, we know that God is with us and we will continue to seek to seek him in everything we do. We can also do that by joining in studying the Psalms together. I'd encourage you to check out Psalms 70, 71, and 72 this week as part of our Bible reading plan. And then please go to the address on screen, grow.faithtree.com. You can check out Melanie's devotional going over these particular Psalms. And then join in the discussion at the bottom. There's a comment section. Add your thoughts, what strikes you about these Psalms. And together, we can encourage each other in seeking God's success rather than worldly success. If there are any ways I can pray for you today, I'd love to hear from you. Shoot me an email at the email address on screen. Leave a comment in the comments below, and I'll follow up after this message. It's always so great to hear from you. What a joy it is to share in prayer and discussion together. Hope you have a wonderful and blessed week. And I will see you again next week.